Good evening and welcome to your call. Joining me tonight is a man who is currently rewriting all the rules of politics in Pakistan. The man who is currently the country's most popular leader according to a recent poll, Imran Khan. Imran Khan, thanks very much for joining me tonight. Imran, you could conceivably return to India as the next Prime Minister of Pakistan. I think um, we have, my party is poised. It, uh, in fact, I'll go a step further. Unless we make blunders, nothing can stop the party from winning. Because the young people in Pakistan, which is the majority, have decided on a change. So therefore, they have identified Tariq Saf PTI, my party, for change. Now, unless we, uh, uh, the image of the candidate does not suit uh, the image of the party, which is for change, uh, it's the only way we will not win. So you're the right man at the right place at the right time? <clears throat> well, uh, insaf is the idea whose time has come. It's interesting because you mentioned corruption and this has been really uh, the, <coughs> the main uh, mantra really of your party, your election campaigns is anti-corruption. India going through a similar flux in a sense where the ruling government is battling with same allegations of corruption, the opposition also facing similar allegations. Do you see any similarities in the two very different struggles the countries are facing? Well, cor remember, corruption is what makes the third world. If you look at uh, Transparency International, this, uh, this uh, NGO which publishes uh, um, every year the table for the most corrupt government and the cleanest governments. Uh, and if you look at the table, the most prosperous countries are the least corrupt and, the, uh, and best governed. And the poorest countries are the most corrupt ones. So it's got nothing to do with your resources. Corruption destroys a country. It destroys the governance system. And when the governance system goes, it doesn't matter if you're sitting on oil like Nigeria. You'll still have masses uh, of poor people. But often, and uh, Indian politicians often pride themselves on the fact that, look, at least India is not like Pakistan. They would claim that our democracy is a success story. Look at what's happening in Pakistan. There's no real democracy. The army can step in any time. The late Prajesh Mishra told me, does General V.K. Singh think he's in Pakistan when there was a whole uh, tension between him and the ruling government? From the Pakistani perspective, how do you see that uh, tale? Well, I'm afraid, and it's sad to say, that to some extent it's right. Pakistan democratic system never got going. Each time the political governments floundered, the army walked in. And so our, our democratic system didn't evolve. India, on the other hand, the democracy got embedded. Nehru stayed there for a long time, and so the systems, systems um, flourished. And Pakistan, our great leader, Qaeda-e-Azam, died immediately after partition. Uh, after um, uh, independence. So we did not have a leader of stature. Mm -hmm. And so hence we are stuck with this, uh, we were stuck with this musical chairs. Politicians failing, army coming back. Army, uh, the fact that it was army rule, we never had, the politicians that came in were nurtured by the army, so natural leadership never evolved. Um, but now we are in, a, in an incredible situation. But for the first time you're seeing in this, in the worst of times, the best of times, we are actually seeing um, a genuine democracy about to explode. And you don't think the army, you don't think the establishment can stop that in a sense? Because some have, of course, accused you of being too close to the army. Well, the ones who accused me was this party PMLN. Uh, and lo and behold, there was this famous case by Azhar Khan, mm -hmm. uh, which was in the Supreme Court, 
where the ISI had funded certain politicians and party. And guess which party they had funded? PMLN, who were accusing me of being funded by the army. So, you know, um, uh, it, they say it takes a thief to catch a thief because the, think, uh, the thief thinks similar to, he thinks everyone, uh, he knows how a thief thinks. So he, they thought we were also, we rose because we were backed by the ISI. But they ha no one has understood this phenomena, this massive change which started in the ground level and then suddenly exploded in these massive public rallies. It's actually a, a politically aware public, thanks to this ele electronic media, which is vibrant. First time we have television with chat shows. Um, you have every, the prime time television is political uh, current affair programs. And secondly, the social media amongst the young people, like in the Arab Spring, it has caused such political awareness that um, now you're seeing a, a completely new Pakistan. And the old politicians can't come to terms with it because they're still stu stuck in a time warp. It's interesting because then when you use age, because in that sense, Bilawal Bhutto, the very young president of the Pakistan People's Party, would, you don't think he would appeal more naturally to the youth uh, than you? But Bilawal has hardly spent any time in Pakistan. He can barely speak Urdu. Uh, he doesn't know Pakistan. Uh, he's inherited a party on a piece of paper. An 18-year-old being made co-chairperson of a party it violates all democratic norms. So um, it's exactly what we are all fighting against. We want a genuine democracy. This is actually uh, more like a monarchy. In fact, Prince Charles would be better equipped to take on after the Queen than say Bilawal after Benazir. Dynasty is a reality in subcontinental politics. Well, it, it violates um, uh, the basis of democracy. You see, why did democracy come in? Because basically, monarchy is degenerative. Just because one king is exceptionally talented or he's struggled in life and he's achieved great things, doesn't mean his son is going to do the same. What makes a leader? He comes through a struggle. It's the struggle that develops a leader where he can withstand pressure. The greatest quality of a leader is he can take pressure. In crises, he stands up like Churchill did once. So uh, if a leader has, has faced no pressure in his life, He's led a, a, a life full of comfort. How can he suddenly be handed over the country's destiny? Uh, uh, destiny? Uh, just to give you an example, both Benazir and Nawaz Sharif, the reason why they failed, one of the reasons why they failed, their first job was pr to be a prime minister. They've never done anything in their lives. I mean, how can you be a leader if you've never done anything in your life? But in that sense, people would say you were a cricketer, then you went into social work and charity. You've been in politics, but not that successfully in the last uh, decades. What equips you? Well, uh, number one, I built an institution. You see, country is all about building institutions, strengthening institutions, how they work. So I built the best institution in Pakistan. In the last three years, it's consistently won awards for the best managed uh, non-corporate institution in Pakistan. I built a university now, the first university out uh, in the rural areas. But I mean, compared to me, uh, hardly any politicians ha has ever done anything. Mm -hmm. Even as a cricketer, at least I achieved, I competed. These guys have done nothing. They haven't even had a job in their lives. Most of them have done no job in their lives. So how do you expect them to run a country? If you do not understand how to run institutions, you cannot run a country. 
Well, Imran, as I said, those who laughed you off, I think, are now eating their words in many senses. But I have some questions. And as I said, a man who is a potential prime minister of Pakistan, a former chief minister of Jammu and Kashmir and a cabinet minister, Farooq Abdullah, has this question to ask you. Imran, it's wonderful to see you in India. And I have one question and one question alone. If you come to power in Pakistan, what, will you, what steps will you take to improve relations between India and Pakistan? One, a part of this, will you bring those who are responsible for the crimes in Mumbai to books? so that people of the subcontinent realize that you mean business to fight terrorism. My friend Farooq, uh, all I can say to him is that my party has taken a decision that it's time now to have a completely new relationship with India. And I hope, uh, you know, the Indian, um, certainly the Indian public realizes it, the young people in India realize it that the dividends of peace are so enormous. I mean, if we have peace, um, there's China, the fastest growing economy on one side of Pakistan. There's a whole energy, uh, uh, the greatest resources of energy on the other side of Pakistan. India, one of the biggest economies on the other side. I mean, if we have peace, this, this could be the fastest growing place in the world, the most happening place in the world. The mere fact that we have not been able to sort out our relation and we have this mistrust and we have um, we blame each other for everything. Pakistan blames India and Balochistan, Mumbai and other things. India blames Pakistan. This mistrust. We have to have a new relationship. So my, this is my conviction. I'm not making any political statements. I'm not going to get votes in India, but I, this is my conviction. It's time to now look ahead and the larger picture. And so that's number one. Number two, when he talks about bringing uh, uh, those criminals of Mumbai to justice. It's my conviction that uh, time has come in Pakistan that we should, uh, th when we deal with terrorism as a whole, because remember, Pakistan is the one which is suffering from terrorism the most. We've lost almost 50,000 people in terrorist attacks. So uh, the time has come now, uh, again for Pakistan, to completely review the way we have uh, dealt with uh, militant groups in our country. Uh, because it is now having an impact that Pakistan can't go on as it is. And I'm not just saying the groups which India is worried about. I'm talking about the groups within, operating within Pakistan. Karachi, for instance, mm -hmm. the three major parties patronize militant groups. Karachi is up in flames. The businesses are leaving Karachi. Karachi is a financial hub. Um, every day there are about 10 to 15 people target killed in Karachi. So um, the country just cannot go on as it is. So therefore, uh, first we intend to pull out of this U.S. war on terror. That will take away the narrative of jihad from the, the militants. Uh, at the moment the jihad uh, narrative is taken away, we mobilize our tribal people to reclaim the tribal areas because the only reason they don't take on the militants is because they will not fight a mujahideen. They're very conservative religious people. The moment the jihad narrative goes, the moment we... We uh, disengage from the U.S. war, won't allow any drone attacks, won't take any money from the U.S. And then we ask our tribal people to reclaim their land and they can easily do it. There are about eight, nine hundred thousand armed tribals as opposed to 
20, 30,000 militants. So they reclaim the land and then we turn inwards and deal with all the sort of militant groups, some nurtured by us during the Afghan Jihad in the 80s, uh, some sectarian groups. We just, Pakistan has to deal with them, de-weaponize them. But in that sense, still Pakistan achieves this, which could well be a long-term solution. For India, the two red flags, as it were, remains that of Hafiz Saeed, who we consider to be part of the mastermind behind the attacks and who we see as roaming free in Pakistan. And of course, uh, Dawood Ibrahim, which the Home Minister just said again, that is in, currently in safe haven, the indication being Pakistan. On these two specific individuals, what would your stand be? Well, you know, I mean, me taking names of individuals and, and, uh, and passing judgment on them because India feels that they are, they are terrorists. Uh, I'm afraid it's, it, this is not the way to go about it. I would, as someone who believes in the rule of law, uh, we would insist that anyone who indulges in terrorist attacks within Pakistan or outside must be brought to justice in a Pakistani court. A uh, lot of people, um, terrorists, haven't been brought to justice. Almost most of the people involved in these uh, 40,000, 50,000 terrorist uh, people killed through terrorism Hardly anyone's been brought to justice. Most of the sectarian terrorists are not brought to justice. The other day, about 29 Shias were pulled out buses and shot in the head. We haven't caught those guys. So therefore, we need to strengthen the rule of law and we need to strengthen the, the, the prosecution. Uh, we need to strengthen the, the justice system. But before all that, we need to pull out of the U.S. war because what is complicating things for Pakistan is because we are perceived, Pakistan army and security forces are perceived as a mercenary army of the U.S., they've declared jihad on Pakistan. And so the security agencies are protecting themselves. How can they protect the people? So once you pull out, then you deal with the various groups. And so if you strengthen your justice system, uh, I think we will eventually be able to control all this. So whoever is responsible for attacks in India, attacks in Pakistan or outside should be brought to justice because... Pakistan cannot go on as it is. Do you accept uh, the Indian narrative that uh, Pakistan is not doing enough to tackle cross-border terror? And, of course, these examples are just cited. Do you accept that narrative? Well, there's hardly any cross-border terrorism now. I, I don't think the Indian government has talked about cross-border terrorism in Kashmir. Mm -hmm. um, the only uh, sticking point is the Mumbai thing. And, but, you know, I think the Indians shouldn't pressurize the Pakistan government to take any extrajudicial step. Because remember, you create uh, martyrs. If the, the more you follow the rule of law, the more you uh, demystify uh, criminals. The more you do this extrajudicial stuff, they become martyrs. I just I always compare Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein. Mm -hmm. Saddam Hussein went through the due process of law. Hardly anyone talks about Saddam Hussein. Osama bin Laden, the way he was shot dead, he has become a cult in a certain group and you, you know it, it's not helped the cause of terrorism. The worry in India of, of course also remains the role of the ISI and our perception would be that the ISI will still see India as enemy number one. In that sense we're not talking about uh, as a former Home Minister Mr. Chidambaram said the state players. When we talk India talks about state players do you accept that there is perhaps some truth there? What, ha what has happened in the past Obviously, you know, India has its suspicion, Pakistan has it. Don't, remember, don't forget that whenever there's something in Pakistan, they blame raw for it. So both governments blame each other. I'm talking about a new relationship. I think uh, it's, this is all about the past. 
the, the idea is to move forward. ISI is a part of the Pakistan army. It's not going to act independently of the Pakistan army. I think the Pakistan army too now wants it, wants a different, the way Pakistan has been governed, it has to be governed as it's never been governed before. And I think the army accepts it because the country is facing crisis of mammoth proportions now. I mean, we're looking at facing bankruptcy. Uh, and, and I think uh, they will back a government which does whatever it can to fix the governance system and, and, and somehow makes Pakistan solvent. And talks new language of peace. Well, let's go across to some people who want to ask you questions from India. And you may not get votes here, but many who want to ask you questions. Uh, let's go across to Srinagar, where some people have questions for you. Assalamu uh, alaikum, Imran sir. This is Maharaj from Kashmir. Sir, if you get a chance, you will come to Kashmir. I'd love to go to Kashmir because my mother always used to spend her summer holidays on a houseboat in Kashmir as a, as a young girl. Uh, my grandfather would take all our family there. And so we always had these... Uh, we were to, Growing up, we were told these stories, so I would love to go there. Um, so the Kashmir thing is, um, simultaneously, we should have talks on Kashmir, and simultaneously, we should open up trade with each other, uh, uh, open up our borders, visa restrictions, um, cricket matches. So uh, the, the two should go together. If you only concentrate on one and not the Kashmir, you will always have the chances of some... Uh, militants doing a Mumbai type thing. So do the two together and then Kashmir is solvable. I have three, three in our party, ex-foreign ministers. All three of them tell me that they came very close to the Kashmir solution, especially in times of Vajpayee. So it means it, it, it is possible. And so therefore resume talks on Kashmir. Um, and I think what India can do as confidence building measure is reduce the army there. Remember, army is no answer to anything. Army is like treating cancer with disprint. It's a temporary solution. It is not a permanent solution. So uh, in Pakistan, uh, our military ad adventures in Fatah have failed, in Balochistan have failed. Uh, in East Pakistan, long ago, they failed. Similarly, India keeping these uh, six, seven hundred thousand troops in the valley it's not going to work. It's going to alienate the people more. So they should start that. We should ensure that there's no militancy from Pakistan. And then we should start talks there and eventually come to some sort of a uh, solution because nothing is impossible. You've been accused sometimes people call you Taliban Khan. And even after you visited 14-year-old Malala who had been shot, you still raise the issue of uh, the perception that jihad and in a way blaming the government. The Afghanistan government attacked you quite strongly after you made that statement that you're too close to the Taliban. How do you answer that? All I told them was, uh, and this is in context of jihad, that Pakistan, if it disengages from the Americans, it will cease to be a jihad in Pakistan. And therefore, once there's no longer jihad, the fanaticism, the suicide bomber goes, we can take care of the, the rest. In Afghanistan, it doesn't matter what Imran Khan thinks. The people fighting against the uh, NATO forces, as long as they think it's jihad, it's jihad. How do you tell Gulbuddin Hekmatyar? When he was fighting against the Soviets, Soviet occupation, it was jihad. And Ronald Reagan greets him as a mujahideen and a hero. Now he's fighting the American occupation, it's not jihad. So in Afghanistan, all I was pointing out was that it's those who are fighting are calling it jihad. And it's in the context 
of taking the jihad narrative away from the Pakistani side. It wasn't meant to upset the Afghan government. It is just stating a simple fact. Who, what do the Taliban who are fighting or the fighters fighting NATO think? Do you think they would be uh, having suicide attacks? All of the attacks are suicide. If they didn't think it's jihad? No, but in the sense, and I know you did condemn strongly, but the shooting of a 14-year-old girl, apparently it's still unclear who exactly was behind it, but the shooting of a 14-year-old girl, by taking away the Americans from this, how does that, that narrative, the fact really about the issue of girls' education, the issue of the fundamentalist argument here, is what those who are against you say you support? No, but this is so ridiculous. Uh, I'm the only person and the only political party that is giving a solution. No one is giving a solution. Everyone else is saying more of the same. Everyone is following Einstein's definition of madness, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. What are they doing different? Eight and a half years of this madness. We're not winning the war. We won't win this in the next 10 years. I'm the only one giving a three-point agenda how to win it. Now, uh, when you disengage, I'm talking about how to deal with the Taliban and the fanaticism. Malala is a case of the fanaticism and the, I mean, the insanity that someone could shoot a 14-year-old girl. I am the first one who went there. I'm the first one who openly condemned the Taliban. The other political leaders, the two men, Zardari and Nawaz Sharif, did not name the Taliban. I condemned them. But somehow, because I talk about a political solution, it's this Bush uh, uh, doctrine, either you're with us or against us. So if you're anti the military operation, you must be pro-Taliban. It's as stupid as that. I mean... Uh, how would you ensure girls, uh, girls' right to be educated freely? How would you ensure that Malalas can go to school? Because the moment you win the war against the, 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 this militancy, you, you will be able to restore the schools back again. It's this, it's this fanaticism stemming out of this insane war, which is actually radicalizing our society more, which is producing these fanatics. There was an article by someone one of the best American minds, which I thought wrote one of the best, most perceptive articles, Graham Fuller, mm -hmm. the ex-CIA station chief of Afghanistan in, in, in Kabul. He wrote this article five years ago saying exactly the same thing. He said, until we keep pushing Pakistan to do more, Pakistan is imploding in a frenzy of fanaticism. The moment we leave Afghanistan, Pakistan's security forces will be able to control uh, 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 the extremists. President Obama re-elected for another four years. You've been a strong critic of his administration for their drone attacks. What do you hope will actually change now? Because so far, America hasn't been receptive to your uh, theories at all. In fact, you had the recent incident when you were detained in Toronto. Well, the point is that drone attacks link Pakistan uh, to the American war. And when they link us together, that means we cannot, uh, you know, we cannot take the narrative of jihad away from the from the militants because they then can, the Pakistan army is killing the same people as, as the, um, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, drones, as the drones. Mm -hmm. We are killing the same people. So we are the common enemy of the, uh, the, uh, the Taliban and therefore jihad, if it's against the Americans, occupying force, it's also against us as collaborators. So therefore, uh, I have always maintained, you know, that these drone attacks are completely counterproductive apart from violating all humanitarian laws. No, no law allows someone to be judge, jury, and executioner and eliminate suspects. Remember, these are suspects. We don't know whether they are, they're actually uh, militants. 
suspects, if their wives, their children, anyone is there is eliminated. I mean, this is barbaric. And it's even descending lower than the level of what the Taliban are doing. And so all it is doing is it's creating anti-Americanism. It is counterproductive in the sense that the militants are quickly replaced. The, you know, whoever is killed is replaced. Um, and according to the Stanford University report, 98% of those who are killed either are low-level militants or innocent civilians. Only 2% are high-level targets. So what is it achieving? What so, are the drone attacks? So I would so convince... Do you, well, do you welcome President Obama's re-election? What I'm hoping is that Obama, in his second term, will realize uh, that since he has no... He's not going to be re-elected. He will realize that uh, he no longer has to worry about the rightists, the... the uh, the pro-war lot, uh, you know, Republic, the neocons, he will no longer be under pressure and he will follow his instincts, which is he's basically a man of peace, as appears in this book, uh, Obama's War, that he was always anti the surge, whereas the general persuaded him, General Patriots. So I hope he, now he will be able to resist the pressure of doing more and more war and more bombs and he will actually give peace a chance. Why, when you played for Sussex, against uh, Gloucestershire, why did you bowl four bounces and over to Sadiq Mohammed and none at all to Zahir Abbas? Well, I've got another, well, I hope, surprise uh, voice uh, to ask you a question. And uh, Sneel Gavaskar uh, on the phone line with this question. And uh, to go ahead and ask your question to Imran Khan. Hi, Sunny. Hi, hi, Imran. Uh, just want to say um, one thing. Uh, it is a there is a cricketing question, but it doesn't concern me. It actually concerns uh, uh, Pakistani players, which I'll ask him a little later. But I just want to say one thing, and uh, that is that uh, Imran changed uh, the uh, the face and the image of uh, Pakistan cricket uh, with his leadership. And I do believe uh, that, uh, you know, if he does come to power, uh, then he, he will do the same uh, politically as well. Uh, I think India has uh, done business with uh, two of uh, the uh, Pakistan's uh, parties, uh, political parties, plus the army. And uh, I don't think uh, there's been much progress, but I do believe with uh, Imran there is a tremendous chance uh, of uh, peace uh, prevailing uh, between uh, the uh, and misunderstanding which are there will be easily uh, solved uh, because he's a sportsman at heart and I think uh, you know I believe that uh, uh, he has the capability of do, of doing so and that's why I wish him all the very best um, in his endeavours uh, to uh, to take Pakistan forward. Uh, the cricketing question I have for him is something I'm sure will make him laugh, and that is simply that you know I've heard these stories so often from different people. And which, and therefore, I'm asking you why, when you played for Sussex against uh, Gloucestershire, why did you bowl four bounces and over to Sadiq Mohammed and none at all to Zahir Abbas? <laughs> <laughs> Country first, always. Well, I would ask, aren't you worried, Mr. Gavaskar, that he'd be as formidable a rival, uh, really, that he was to the Indian cricket team, uh, that that would translate into his politics? Uh, go ahead, Imran. No, but, but, but. Uh, I'll just say one thing to Sunny, and he, because we sort of competed, you know, he was, it was a question of getting him out to uh, beat India, you know, he was the, the wall, uh, and so, I mean, I was the main baller, so it was always competing, 
But I had the greatest respect for Sunny, and I thank you for the nice words he said about me. Um, the, the thing is, um, at least Sunny knows that whatever I say, I'll do. <laughs> at least India will know that when I say something, I'll do it. You know, I mean, uh, it won't be That's a question. <laughs> it, it won't be a question of you know if I say uh, that you know there won't be any terrorism from our soil, and then I'll make excuses. You so, won't be controlled by the army. You won't be a puppet of anyone. I have never been controlled by anyone in my life. Um, uh, the the the, <laughs> the thing about that we know <laughs> that many cricket administrators in Pakistan know as well. But 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 about cricket, what he said. Uh, you see, there were these two players, Pakistani players, who both played with me, Zahir and Sadiq. The reason he knows I used to bowl bounces at the other guy, because whenever he used to play with me, because when I was younger, when I was a boy who came into the cricket team, Sadiq gave me a very tough time. He used to make fun of me, he used to sort of ridicule me, he said I would never succeed. Uh, I remember once I was, uh, and I was 18, you know, I wasn't very good, he was right, I mean, I was... Uh, so I, they made me feel at this position where a silly uh, short leg without helmets or anything, where I, where I could have been hit. And, and so when I was fielding there, uh, I, I could, he could see, I, I mean, they could see I was nervous. And Sadiq went and said, it doesn't matter, you know, put him there. He's never going to play cricket again anyway. <laughs> so I never forgot that. And therefore, I always wanted to prove a point against him. Currently, of course, there's an Indo-Pak cricket series coming up again in India. Politically, it's a controversial move. Do you think you can have cricket, etc., everything else going on when you still have sticking points, like, say, for the differences between India and Pakistan on Mumbai 26-11? Are we going to be stuck in the past? I mean, Pakistan will list these number of things. This is what some Jota Express and God knows what not. Because everything, every time you, Indian government talks about this, about a, a, a whole list comes from the Pakistani side, we're stuck in the past. It's time to move on. Yes, we should not allow anyone, any terrorism from our, our soil. Yes, we should have uh, two governments that should have confidence that we are trying our best, help each other. Rather than making it more difficult for each other, let's help each other to have a strong relationship. Relationships are nurtured. You know, they're never one-sided that you'd have to do this, you come to the... Uh, to my, my standard and then I'll talk to you. This is nonsense. This is immature. Uh, for the sake of the subcontinent, time has come to move on now. And remember, we, we both accuse each other of so many things. Let, them, let us leave them behind and see a new era now in our relationship. Does cricket actually help? Because in a sense, watching an Indo-Pak cricket match isn't like watching it in the days of you and Sunil Gavaskar. It's changed. It's moved on. In a sense, the passion perhaps on both sides is lacking as well. Well, it's because maybe they play too much now. Our, our time, we weren't playing as much. But uh, I must say one thing that um, India-Pakistan match, if the governments are moving closer, if the whole atmosphere is of peace, then a healthy, they become healthy competition. We enjoy the matches, but that the anger and the, the what is the word, the nastiness goes out of it. Mm -hmm. But if the relationship is not good, if there's anger, on, like I played twice, once when the, we were getting closer, it was Im incredible the sort of feeling in India, you know, the warmth and everything. The next time I played, our forces were in border in 1987, and there were, I felt a lot of animosity on the cricket field from the crowds. Mm -hmm. So if you play in the right atmosphere, then cricket actually can be a cementing force. Mm -hmm. I have a question also from a viewer on uh, for, who wrote into our website, ntv.com, and uh, 
they ask that how can Muslims actually look at going beyond stereotypes both in Pakistan and India that in a sense is a stereotypical view of Muslims both in India and Pakistan how do they combat that image unfortunately this uh, this 9-11 has exacerbated the whole situation uh, the you know when the biggest blunder made by George Bush and Tony Blair was that they declared war against radical Islam. Now, what, what should have happened, in my opinion, was there were 19 criminals. They should have been treated like criminals. They should not have been elevated to the status of holy warriors. Because the moment Islam comes in, they would be, you know, the, the moment become warriors of Islam, there would be plenty of people wanting to emulate them. Every human community has its fanatics. So I felt that the, the way the whole war was fought was deeply flawed. Islam should never have been part of it. It was not a war against ideology, which is what they made out to be. This is not ideology, some ideological war, like communism and Nazism. It, it was almost deliberate that they wanted to create it, a, a, an enemy. This war, all it, it had, the, the root causes were political. And politics was, is... In, in case of 9-11 was the Palestinian-Israeli issue. That, that's what caused this. Do you find that as a Muslim politician or as a politician who believes in Islam, you're buttonholed into certain, uh, into certain pockets or boxes in a way? You know, people will say, oh, is, uh, Imran Khan is a Muslim politician. Ergo, he's a fundamentalist. Ergo, he supports the uh, radical mullahs. Well, you know... <laughs> uh, the problem is that ever since the Iranian Revolution, the, the, the West, the Americans, they look upon Muslim societies as some sort of fight going on between fundamentalism and, and some moderates. And they, 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 this is the narrative they have put the Muslim world in. And actually in India, they look uh, upon us the same. Actually, this is not the issue in the Muslim world. It's between the status quo and anti-status quo. Hence, when the Arab Spring took place, uh, everyone kept wondering, where are the fundamentalists and where are the moderates? Actually, everyone was together against a corrupt status quo. Same thing in Pakistan. My political party, basically, is exactly what the Arab Spring is all about. We have all sorts of people with us. We have right-wing or what you call Dini Madrasa students. We have English medium. We have across the board. People wanting a change. Democratic rights. So because this, this strange narrative has been imposed upon me, on one side, I'm called by, uh, by the so-called Western liberals who basically uh, we, I call West-toxified. Whatever the West says, they, they, they parrot in Pakistan. They call me some sort of a Taliban Khan or a fundamentalist and so on. On the other hand, the Taliban call me a Western liberal secular uh, and pro-American. So I'm stuck between these two extremes because they don't understand the real issue of Pakistan, which is a, a, a small corrupt status quo. A ruling elite, which is, uh, which, is, which is hogging all the resources of the country, as opposed to the majority of Pakistanis who want change and a genuine democracy. But one common issue, we would say, both with politicians in India and perhaps in Pakistan as well, that in India, where perhaps the quest is for a vote bank, that certain politicians do not speak up against even the most fundamentalist tenets of, of uh, say, either Hinduism or Islam because of vote banks they're catering to. I was told that... Uh, I did not criticize Taliban in the Malala incident. There's a press conference showing me, naming the Taliban, which, by the way, neither the two the other major leaders did not name them. Um, look, the, but there is no doubt that as a politician, you have to tread very carefully, especially now in Pakistan, which is a polarized society. 
it's a highly radicalized society thanks to this war on terror, you really have to tread very carefully. Yes, you have to right now. Recent reports, of course, of an exodus of minorities from Pakistan. Do you feel there is cause of, for concern of the status of minorities currently in Pakistan? Uh, there is. Uh, I, in the Hindu community uh, in Sin, I visited them. And I know that there was a doctor there who was killed. Uh, and I visited that village. Uh, and I'm sad to say that, yes, there was injustice there. But remember, there is no rule of law in Pakistan. I mean, there's killing going... When rule of law collapses, anyone who is from the weaker section of the society suffers. Laws are to protect the weak from the strong. Mm -hmm. But it's not specifically community-based because Raymond Davis was a Christian. This American CIA guy in broad daylight shoots two Pakistani teenagers in front of everyone in a crowded street. He's, he's taken out of Pakistan. He's above law. He... A Pakistan law could not do anything. So therefore, if you're a strong, doesn't matter what religion you belong to, you're, you can get away with anything, murder. But if you're weak, you have no protection. That's why my party is called Tariq Ansar Movement for Justice. We need rule of law in Pakistan. Rule of law is what will protect minorities. And I'm sad to say that in Sin, where there's absolute, the law has completely collapsed. I mean, in, if you look at Karachi, uh, every day there are target killings going on. No one is caught. So you really need rule of law to protect the weak. You said uh, that, I mean, in the cricket anecdote, you said that you never really forget. What do you say now to people who actually uh, ridiculed you when you entered politics and you didn't win any financial seats? You've had parodies that have called you in the dim. You had Salman Rushdie call you a dictator in waiting and compare you to Gaddafi. What, what would you say to all these people now when, as I said, you look set, unless you make a major blunder, to be the next prime minister? I, I, it's happened to me all my life. I mean, in this particular, <laughs> in this particular case, it was different because he used to make fun of me as a bowler. So I wanted to prove a point to him. But actually, uh, you know, I'm used to all my life. People used to say this is not possible, impossible. Whether it was cricket, when I was building a hospital, uh, people made fun of me. Uh, politics, I've had people laughing at me throughout. It's it's part of life. I remember Gandhi saying this at first. They laugh at you. Then they stop laughing at you and then they praise you. Uh, so uh, it hap it's part of life. It, it Actually, I forgive people very easily. I don't particularly care. But what I feel is that uh, uh, those skeptics, some of them who were, who were really, who used to ridicule me, are now part of my party. Our last question is now from Mumbai. Let's just uh, go across to that now. I'm not a uh, professional player, but uh, I'm a regular batsman and baller too, like all-rounder. Uh, I just want to ask you uh, that I've heard that you have most female fans uh, in the cricket history. So is it true, sir? Oh God, I never looked at it that way. The most, uh, most female fans of a Pakistani politician? Uh, uh, I'm past that age of fan. I'm fans, you know. I mean, at my age, you don't look upon life like that. But what I do notice is that the young and the women of Pakistan are now all with my party. So you're not asking why? You know, there's a revolution in, in, in houses. Uh, the father is in one party, the wife and children are moving towards Tariq and Saab. In the homes, there's a revolution. Whatever works is fine. But tell me, when you, when you wrote your autobiography, some said that perhaps you airbrushed some of your past. You kind of left out key chapters, your relationships, uh, when you were a young cricketer. Some described you then as a cricketer playboy. That's not politically convenient now? Or you've grown up? 
I mean, you know, you, I could have left out a lot of details about my school days, then my university days. I mean, you know, we all evolve. I mean, human beings, the more they challenge themselves, the more, um, you know, the more you pit yourself against resistance, mm -hmm. the more you grow. And then the more things that at one point in your life seemed important, later on become trivial because you've actually, uh, your targets are much higher now and your, um, you look at life completely differently. What's interesting, of course, is you, uh, you got married and then within a few years or within a year, you entered politics. You didn't think that would be difficult considering you hadn't married a Pakistani. Um, you know something, um, it's one thing I have always done in life is that I follow my passion. You know, I follow whatever, I dream something and then I go for it. And most of the times you do not know what it encompasses because you can't tell what will happen, you know. And so you think, I mean, I always believe whatever happens, I can, uh, I can uh, cope with it. But in the case of getting married, the, uh, the mistake I made was, and I, I regret, the only regret I have is because my ex-wife suffered. Because I thought I was strong enough to take, uh, you know, take on all the odds. But she, poor girl, coming from her background, you know, she really went through hell. Uh, political life was a nightmare for her. Uh, so I felt bad in the end. I thought, you know, if I was ready for it, I should not have re really put someone else um, uh, to the test which she went through. And really she went through. But then I didn't expect that in Pakistani politics, I, normally women are left out of it. You know, you, no one so attacks the family. In this, case. in this case, they went for her, you know, because they couldn't uh, accuse me of corruption or anything. And so they just, that she became the soft target. And they went for her, and that is what I did not anticipate when I, when I went into politics. Somehow I thought there would be some etiquette. Do you think you'll ever get married again? I'm not sure. Well, look, at this age, I'm not brash enough to ever make these uh, uh, definite statements, what, I, what will happen in the future. I, I began to realize uh, that you plan your life uh, in one direction and life goes in another direction. Uh, so really, you don't know what will happen. I don't know. Your sons are growing up. Are any of them interested in politics or are they interested in what their father does? Uh, the older one is much more interested. He's, he's become very political. Really? Mainly because he worries about me all the time. Uh, because, you know, for children, you know, they, if, if they love their father, they, he's intelligent enough to know their risks involved. Mm -hmm. So he worries a bit. And that's why he, he follows politics. Uh, but, you know, to say that they will ever go into politics, I hope not. So as we end tonight, nothing can stop the tsunami, Imran Khan? The only thing can stop the tsunami is if we, if we blunder in awarding tickets of a party. If the tickets of a party are awarded to the right people, in other words, people also who reflect change, I don't think anyone can stop this. <laughs> Imran Khan, well, we know that you, you've got what it takes, at least on the cricket field and now on the political field. Thank you so much for joining us on NDTV. Thank, Thank you. So. you.